Welcome everyone to episode six of the Walder Sportscast. My name is Chris Walder, and you can find me on both Twitter and Instagram at Walder Sports. On today's episode, I'll be joined by Blake Murphy, who covers the Toronto Raptors and NBA basketball for The Athletic, and who I previously worked with for a short stint at The Score, so I'm looking forward to chatting it up with him. But before I get to Blake, though, I just want to quickly acknowledge off the top everything that's going on, for the most part in the United States, following the murder of an unarmed black man, George Floyd, by a police officer in Minnesota who kneeled on his neck for over eight minutes, which led to his death. And it would be foolish of anyone to look at this as an isolated incident when you take into account other names like Trayvon Martin or Eric Garner or Breonna Taylor. That's why we're seeing the protests at the degree we are, because it's an absolute necessity due to these types of incidents happening far too often for far too long. People have to speak out. People have to take a stand against racism, against the black community, and the inhumane police brutality that community faces. Now, I'm a white male, and I come from a place of privilege where I haven't had to deal with racism in my lifetime, so I can't possibly understand what it's like to be in the shoes of a black person on a daily basis and the struggles they encounter. I mean, hell... I spent most of the last 10 years covering a predominantly black sport and writing and tweeting about black athletes, so that's why it's on me to listen and learn and support and do whatever it is that I can. I've made donations to both the Minnesota Freedom Fund and the COVID-19 Black Emergency Support Fund because that's the least I can do during times like these, but that's still not enough. Now, as it pertains to this podcast, you will not hear Blake and I go in-depth on this important subject matter because I felt it would be wrong to have two white men discuss how another race and culture is feeling at times like these. Now, it will be talked about off the top, in particular as it pertains to Blake's experience participating in a protest in downtown Toronto, but I want to be able to amplify black voices, not speak on behalf of them when I have absolutely no business doing so, so... I am currently in the process of putting together a show to where I can give the subject matter the time and respect it deserves, so I will be releasing that as soon as I can. It's on myself and so many others to show compassion and empathy and be better allies to the black community and not steer the conversation towards anything other than the pain and suffering they've long endured, how it needs to stop, and how we can all help make that happen. Welcome to the Walder Sportscast with your host, Chris Walder. Joining me now is Blake Murphy, a Raptors reporter for The Athletic Toronto and a co-host of both the Raptors Reasonablists and Columbia House Party podcasts. And no, he is not the former NXT Tag Team (laughs) Champions. Uh, Blake, my man, welcome to the program. Thanks, man. I, I appreciate you clarifying that out of the gate. I know with you tweeting about wrestling a fair amount, uh, there are probably, when you tweet it out, there will be one or two people who make the joke. It always happens. Well, it happens far too often, and, and we'll dive into that a little bit later on. But, um, Blake, first off, uh, it would be kind of irresponsible of me if we didn't chat just a little bit about what's going on in the world right now. Uh, recently, Blake, you were one of several thousands who took part in a rally in downtown Toronto to protest racism against black people following not just the murder of George Floyd by police officers in Minnesota, but the recent death of Toronto resident Regis Korczynski-Piquette. 
Blake, what was it like being down there for the protests? And if you can, describe some of the sights and sounds you experienced that day. Yeah, it was um, it was a really powerful experience for me. You know, I, I like to consider myself a, a good person who uses their platform pretty well. But, um, you know, it, it's come it's been a learning process the last little bit about how to not about racism obviously um you know if you haven't done the learning on that yet uh you're way behind but in terms of how what allyship looks like and how to be an advocate and um you know that it's more than some retweets and some donations especially you know i do have a platform and i can use that so um you know i felt energized to do that and and go be a part of that and kind of learn and experience that um i'd never done something like that before uh, first time, first time in a crowd in a while too, given, right. given the uh, the lockdowns and everything. Uh, but it was really powerful. You know, it started off at, at Christie Pitts Park with a couple of speeches, and there was a, an artist and activist named Kenosha Love who delivered this really impassioned speech that, um, you know, it, it was pretty heavily directed at, at white people. And, and you know, her quote was, "Can I swear on this?" Sure, absolutely. Her closing quote was, "Pull the fuck up." Um, you know, with which kind of wrapped up her entire tone that like, why are black people the only people who are angry about this? Why are indigenous people the only people who are angry about this? Um, so that was powerful. You know, walking in a crowd like that was powerful. Um, I was thankful, obviously, that that particular protest went off pretty peacefully. Um, you know, that hasn't been the case uh, around the world thanks to some uh, some bad actors in a, in a lot of these cases. Yes. Um, and, and people, you know, paradoxically, using police brutality in protests against police brutality um but yeah it, that one the one in toronto here went went pretty well and then it concluded at police headquarters um with a couple of more speeches from the black and indigenous community and, and regis's family um yeah all told it, it was a powerful experience you know i came away from there with a better idea of like i said what allyship looks like and what advocacy looks like and what anti-racism instead of not being race, just not being racist um, looks like. So, um, you know, I'm sure everyone's been inundated with, with tweets and Instagram stories and things like that. And I think that's important right now, um, especially, you know, for people like us who are part of a, a predominantly white media covering a predominantly black sport that comes yes. with a, you know, a certain responsibility. And it comes with uh, this, you know, you, you can't be a member of this community when the Raptors win a championship and everyone gets together and celebrate and then turn around and not be a member of that community when, when the marginalized groups within that community need your help. So, um, you know, this is all stuff that logically I, I knew and, and I believed before I, I was acting on it. And it's been, uh, you know, the protest kind of crystallized that there's a lot more at least I can be doing and I'm sure most of us can be doing. And that, that's something I've noticed a lot on social media lately as well, is people calling for members of the basketball media, specifically white members, to speak out on the injustice and racism the black community continuously faces due to the fact that they cover and make money off of a league that's predominantly black, like the NBA. So did you ever feel that added level of pressure or responsibility to use your voice to make a stand on this matter based on what you do for a living? Not, not necessarily in, in like an A to B ca uh, causation. Like I, I think that because I'm around that community all the time, like I care about that community. I, I don't feel like I was, um, I don't feel like I was pressured to speak or be anti-racist because I cover basketball. I feel like those are things that I believe in anyway. Um, but what was brought to my attention through this, and it was pretty early on, is that you know there's a difference between 
some retweets and some donations. And don't get me wrong, retweets are good because it's important to amplify those voices and make space for uh, marginalized voices in a space you normally occupy. But there's also something important about putting your own voice on things. And, and I think I underestimated the fact that a message can maybe, um, first of all, how a message gets across when it's um, you know amplified through everyone's voice, but also how a message from someone who looks like me and someone who does what I do might get through differently uh, to someone than you know what a retweet looks like. Where if you know I don't know if you if you're scanning Twitter and you see a person you don't recognize, maybe you don't engage with that tweet, um, or you know maybe the message coming from someone different said a little differently um, matters a little bit more. So um, you know, like I said, I, I think I care about these things because I care about people and I care about members of my community and. and police brutality and anti-black racism are, are awful and there's no place for them. Uh, but I think in terms of the volume and activity level of how I want to help this, that's kind of what has been pushed forward. And not not necessarily because I cover the NBA, but because, you know, you kind of realize through a, a movement like this that, yeah, you know, I, I thought I was doing a bit, but I'm not doing enough. And there's more that I can be doing. And there's more we can all be doing. So, um, you know, not necessarily, I don't think I felt any guilt or anything like that because I covered the NBA. It was just more of a, hey, like, like Kenosha said, like, pull the fuck up. Let's go. And you did something really great on Twitter today as well. It, we're recording this episode on June 4th, and you sent out a tweet about wanting to help with the lack of di diverse voices in the sports media industry. If you'd like to touch a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. I mean, I just wanted to, you know, my email's public and people have emailed me before for career advice or just to pick my brain on, on what my path to this job has been. Um, and I just wanted to encourage people, anyone really, but especially um, black, indigenous, people of color, women, L LGBTQ community, um, whoever, you know, might feel that their voice is marginalized, not feel like those voices are marginalized in the sports sphere, um, you know, to reach out if they need it. And I don't, you know, I don't have hiring power when I was kind of in charge of uh, Raptors Republic, you know, that was something I tried to focus on. But that, that's another, you know, thing that I've, I've learned through all of this. And again, learned is maybe not the right word, because once you hear it, logically, it makes a lot of sense. But it's been brought to my attention that it needs greater focus is, you know, the Raptors Republic masthead has always been pretty diverse. But diversity is not like a binary thing where you are diverse, or you aren't you kind of you know, you have to be more nuanced with it than that. And, and when I looked, it's like, you know what? Okay, we do have a lack of black voices, even if maybe we're, we do have some diversity to our voices. Um, there aren't enough black voices in that space. Um, so, you know, I don't have hiring power at The Athletic. Um, there's, you know, I think most of the, the industry is in a freelance freeze right now, but if I can help people right. by giving them contacts or, or telling them how I started pitching people freelance or, or just, even talking career stuff, um, I want to do that. So I encourage people to to email me. Uh, my email is eblakemurphy1 at gmail.com or bmurphy at theathletic.com. Um, I'll try to help however I can, and even if it's just answering some questions.
Well, you're a good man for doing that, Blake, and I echo that sentiment. I encourage anyone from those communities to reach out to you. I, I believe you're an invaluable resource, and I hope people take you up on that offer. Uh, but Blake, there's no obviously no easy way to transition over into sports, but we're going to try to because the NBA's Board of Governors voted 29-1 to today to approve a 22-team format for the season to return, with 13 teams from the Western Conference and 9 from the East. Blake, just removing the fact that you're a basketball writer from the equation, if you don't mind, what was your initial reaction when it was becoming clearer that the season was going to return, when you take into consideration everything that's going on right now in the world with the Black Lives Matter movement, as well as the COVID-19 pandemic? Yeah, you know, I think the timing of this with everything that's going on is awkward. Um, you know, I know that the, the league's operating in a very compressed timeline here. What I hope is that people aren't using this as a, as a reason to kind of pivot off everything that people are doing and talking about right now because the NBA is going to be back in a month and a half, two months. Um, I hope that, you know, Adam Silver was on Inside the NBA tonight and the quote he gave was, we could uniquely potentially have an impact on these issues, ultimately maybe in a position to have more of an impact on the issue than maybe any organization in the world. Um, obviously, you need to see some action behind that. Uh, you know, Mich Silver even admitted that Michelle Roberts of the MBPA pushed back a little bit and was like, basically, it can't be what it always is, where, you know, we release a T-shirt and a statement and, and it ends there. So hopefully the NBA is mobilized to use that opportunity. Um, you know, it is two months away, so I'd imagine the conversation is a little different by the time July 31st comes around. Um, but I would hope that the league's leadership and the players' union's leadership will spend the next six, seven weeks, um, you know, thinking of ways that they can push that conversation forward and use the league's return to make an impact. Uh, from the COVID front, I have just kind of a lot of questions and they're not questions that can be answered right now. You know, again, on Inside sure. the NBA, uh, Adam Silver did say that their current belief is that players will be tested daily and that will allow them to not have to shut down if a player tests positive. Um, you know, Silver said from the beginning that the, the quote that gets passed around, it's the data, not the date. Um, I don't think the league's going to like open up their data to us, but I would like a little bit more information on it. Um, you know, right now, July 31st as a start date with like July-ish for every team to ascend on uh, Orlando seems quick relative to, you know, Florida's cases numbers are still rising. Um, testing capacity is still not where it needs to be. Um, you know, and, and then more than the larger societal problems like I, I still don't know that we have a clear idea on how the league and disney intend to keep the players safe and i think that right you know friday the mbpa player reps are supposed to vote on the return to play proposal um you know i i would hope that that vote is strictly on the format because i don't think players have enough information on uh what the medical situation looks like to make a, a fully informed decision uh and i hope that's coming soon because it, it's great that you know, there's this thing to be excited about. And again, you don't want to distract from, from the current conversation, but looking ahead two months, it'll probably be really nice to have basketball <laughs> back. Um, but, you know, you would like to, when five games tip off on July 31st, I would like to be able to enjoy basketball without this sense of dread in the back of my head and this sense of, um, I guess, guilt of like the players being at risk for, uh, for the league's revenues and for our entertainment. And just from a straight basketball standpoint, it looks like the league is going to be moving forward with this conference-based seating because we had heard rumors and rumblings of 
perhaps abolishing conferences altogether and seeding the top 16 teams or or even a group stage, which I thought was kind of crazy. But this season with a layoff and how long it's been, do you think now, Blake, would have been the right time to experiment and possibly try a new format instead of sticking with the norm? I don't I don't really think so. Um, you know, again, Adam Silver mentioned uh, on Inside the NBA that Michael Jordan was a, a big proponent of not being gimmicky. And I think the logic there makes sense. I know people wanted to get creative and try some new stuff because there's already this going to be this weird kind of, you know, I don't really believe asterisks is, is the right way to approach it. But sure. it's, it's going to be recognized as a very different championship, whoever wins. Um, so I think the idea of trying to maintain as much integrity to that as possible makes sense. Um, I get, I certainly get why people were like, you know what, the season's already so weird, let's try something. I wasn't a big fan of the, of the group stage format. I thought it just like um, diluted the 64, 65 games teams have already played too much. I would have been cool with the the no conference seating just to try it out. You know, the uh, in most years that would probably be a more fair way to to do things in a more merit-based way but the the issue is always going to be that just adds way too much travel um in this case you don't have the travel concern so you could have novel matchups and things like that um you know the counter to that is always like if you can build rivalries by having some of the same you know if you get raptors sixers again or raptors bucks again or you get raptors celtics for the first time after they've been kind of rivals for four or five years you know, those are good things that'll help the excitement of the playoffs in future years, too. So uh, I would have been cool with the one to 16, but I definitely get why they're not, uh, you know, they're not doing something like group play or a more convoluted play in system. Um, probably, you know, I, I, I get I understand the desire to kind of keep the inte- whatever integrity of the championship there, there, there could be this year. Well, one team that I think seemingly benefits from this layoff is the reigning NBA champions, the Toronto Raptors, especially in terms of getting healthy, nursing their injuries, and getting rest for their veteran guys. How do you see these next several weeks and months unfolding for Toronto? Because there's still a lot of work to be done, especially in those regular season games, since they haven't locked the third seed up yet, correct? Yeah, so, um, you know, the big thing for the Raptors to figure out before we even get into basketball is the logistics of... Are they going to Orlando early? Are they finding another site in the U.S. to operate on? Um, the, you know, the timeline that the league has released that's still kind of up in the air. But but it would basically see all the teams reconvene for camps in their own sites before heading to Orlando. Uh, if you do that with the Raptors and you have players traveling from the U.S. to Canada and then Canada back to the U.S., um, it seems to add a, a layer of risk factor that I don't know is worth it for a week or two to be at OVO Center versus. Um, somewhere else so that's the first big hurdle the raptors have to figure out i think is is where this all uh occurs for them and then i think beyond that you know the the biggest questions are how do the older players respond and this isn't unique to the raptors you know um they do have three players in their top seven who are 30 or older um marcus all you know you would hope that the benefit of downtime given that he went nba finals run right into world cup and, and was suffering from hamstring issues. Um, you'd hope that outweighs any rust. Um, you know, Serge Ibaka is a guy who maybe he starts a little slower because he is so uh, meticulous and routine-oriented with, with how he prepares himself. Um, you know, Kyle Lowry appears to have kept himself in pretty good shape, but you, you don't really know. It, like, we've never had a situation like this, and I think, 
you know, look if you look at how guys perform at the starts of seasons, it's pretty inconsistent with whether young players or old players start a little better. Um, I think if you're the Raptors, the thing you're hoping for, though, is that you do have really good continuity in your top seven, uh, maybe even your top eight. You do have a defensive system that was number two in the league before hiatus, and that is really heavily based on kind of collective defensive IQ. And yeah, the time off maybe affects that a little bit, but I think the Raptors would enter hoping that, hey, by the time these eight games are done, um, we're going to be clicking, we're going to be playoff ready pretty quickly. I, I would think that's the Raptors' line of thinking right now. And Blake, you've been watching and rap and watching and covering the Raptors for so long. You've you've seen the ultimate highs, the lows, and personally, I got more enjoyment out of watching them this season than I did last, mainly because the expectations were tempered and that championship was locked up and delivered. How would you grade the team for what they were able to accomplish prior to the shutdown? Yeah, I think you know maybe the only season that really compares to this is is 2015-2016 in terms of okay uh the excitement with how they were playing it and the uh you know the the overshooting expectations that's that's the year they went to the to the conference finals and won what at the time was a franchise best 56 wins but yeah i think you know the, it's a pretty resounding a to uh lose your your best player in free agency also lose danny green um not have a first round draft pick not have a draft pick at all until number 59 overall and, uh, and not have the cap space to kind of replace any of those guys. You know, they, they added Rondé Hollis-Jefferson and, and a couple other lower guys with exceptions. But, um, you know, really, they had Kawhi Leonard and Danny Green taken off their team. They had some questions about whether they'd even keep the core together. And they blew away expectations. It's the ninth year in a row that the Raptors will um, beat the Vegas over-under, assuming Vegas doesn't get real weird with how they handle the over-unders in a, in a changed schedule format. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of, you know, plays to their identity. But yeah, I think, you know, Kyle Lowry bucked the aging trend. Um, Marcus Gasol and Serge Ibaka, you know, Gasol hadn't lost anything on the defensive end. Ibaka had the offensive year of his career. Things kind of clicked finally all into place for Norman Powell. OG Ananobi was finally healthy. Terrence Davis was an undrafted find. You, you add all these things up, and um, you could certainly have questions about just how well the Raptors' performance would hold up in the postseason when you look at the fact that they had an average-ish offense, and, and that offense at times struggled against better teams. Um, when you factor in the extra defensive attention that teams might throw at Pascal Siakam, who's still learning in a number one role, I would get those hesitations for sure. Um, but they were also, you know, winning. They were on pace for, for 59 wins again, and they were the number two defense in the league, and they were even better against the league's best 10 teams than the worst 10 teams on the defensive end of the floor um, relative to, like, in, in terms of league rank. So they had a lot going for them in that regard. Um, and, yeah, I mean, you can't fully evaluate until the playoffs end, I guess, but in terms of regular season, they, they blew everything away, man. I, I don't know how you... I don't. Other than maybe being healthy, I don't know how you have a, a better regular season to date, given expectations. And you touched briefly on Las Vegas and odds. And if the playoff seating was to remain intact, it would be the Raptors and the Brooklyn Nets in the first round. And I, I briefly saw a story about how the odds for the Brooklyn Nets are rising because it's, there's speculation that Kevin Durant could return early from his Achilles injury. Are you taking all of that with a grain of salt right now, or is that something that Toronto should have in the back of their minds? I don't, I mean, first of all, you're just, it's not really something you can control, right? And I think, I think that, yes, um, 
there's no more home court advantage. So, you know, when you're looking ahead to the second round, maybe that Toronto-Boston matchup that it seems like we're probably going to get, um, maybe you're not as worried about being the, the upper seed in that one. But if you look, I still think that, like, even if Brooklyn were to do that, um, they would be preferable a preferable opponent having just come back and not having the chemistry and stuff like that um, to, you know, if you draw Philadelphia or Miami, if you follow the three seed. There's also the matter, you know, Rich Kleiman, um, Kevin Durant's agent, had basically said that that's not going to happen. Um, I, okay. know Vegas, I know Vegas odds, you know, they're usually ahead of the game. He called it unrealistic on May 6th. Uh, that Kevin Durant would be back. So, I don't know, maybe the timeline's pushed enough that it's now realistic for KD. You know, at his age, coming off an Achilles tear, I feel like you probably not even, you know, he, I don't think he'd be going at 100% speed come the first round of the playoffs after only eight tune-up games. Um, and, and even then, he probably wouldn't play in all eight games if they're being played across 14 or 15 or 16 days or whatever. You know, but the bigger thing is that it's not something you can control, right? If you if you slide down to the three seed and then it ends up that you could have had Orlando in the 2-7 matchup, or you slide down to the three seed and then you end up having to play the Sixers and, and suddenly Ben Simmons is healthy and Joel Embiid's had all this time off. Um, you know, I think you're inviting some some bad karma if you try to play the seed jumping game. So <laughs> I think you just you try to make sure you get number two. I mean, you probably it's going to be tough for them to fall anyway. They're going to have a, a tougher schedule than Boston, but a three game cushion with only eight games left is a uh, is a pretty good cushion. Well, I'm just a warrior, Blake. That's the kind of person I am. I remember well, Durant you were raised and, on the Raptors. You have to worry. That, it's exact. It's in my DNA at this point. That's what Toronto the Toronto Raptors have done for me. And I remember Durant in Game Five of the NBA Finals when he returned and was knocking down those three-pointers and what could have been had he not gotten hurt. So yeah, I personally have the Durant uh, saga in the back of my mind, but Blake, something else I worry about is what this Raptors team is going to be looking like next year because we've got Fred Van Vliet, Serge Ibaka, Marcus Saul all hitting the open market. Of those names, just in your gut, I mean, I'm not sure if you have any inside information, that would be awesome, but how would you rank them in terms of who you think is most likely to remain in Toronto? Yeah, that's a tough one. I mean, there are a couple big unanswered right now. And the biggest one is what does the salary cap look like for next year? And and that's um, obviously the, the way the league's revenues have changed here uh, is going to impact that some. I think everyone understands that that's why there's the push to get back and the push to do these eight games for every team and keep the playoffs fully intact as best four best of seven rounds. Um, you know, they're trying to minimize the hit to their basketball related income. Uh, you know, we don't know how the league's going to handle it. The, the CBA isn't set up to handle this. Uh, so the assumption is that the NBA and MBPA are going to negotiate a different way to handle the salary cap. The most logical proposal that I've heard talked about is, and I can't remember if this came from John Hollinger of The Athletic or he just passed it on from, from somewhere else, uh, but basically it would be to hold next year's salary cap at the same level it was this year and take a higher percentage of player salaries into escrow. And what escrow is, is basically a percentage of the salaries that get held just in case the amount played to, paid to players um, it doesn't line up with the 51% of basketball-related income that they're owed. So you'd maybe hold back more of that this time in case revenues aren't high enough. Um, but basically, the idea would be to hold the salary cap that way, there's not this big drop and then a huge spike in 2021. And that's that's kind of what happened in 2016 when the new TV deal kicked in and they didn't smooth things out. And then suddenly the Warriors coming off a 73-win <laughs> season can sign KD to a max deal um, or you know close to a max or whatever the specifics were. I'm a little 
forgetful on. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you're trying to avoid that. So I think if the cap stayed the same, um, you'd like your chances of retaining maybe two of those guys. You know, the thing with Fred Van Vliet is going to be how does the how do the cap changes affect the teams who could be Fred Van Vliet suitors? And I think the two big ones to keep an eye on are the Detroit Pistons and the New York Knicks. The Knicks obviously have money and would like to get anyone who would take it. Uh, the Detroit Pistons have the Dwayne Casey connection and a fair amount of cap space. The Atlanta Hawks are a team that have a ton of cap space. I have some questions about how a Van Vliet, Trey Young backcourt um, holds up defensively, given that right. Van Vliet has been, you know, Van Vliet's played a ton of minutes in two point guard lineups, but they've generally been two very good point, defensive point guards in those lineups. Um, but they're a team that I could see going after Van Vliet. So um, Fred himself has said that, you know, if the cap dynamics change dramatically, maybe he's more open to a shorter term deal. And so maybe you're looking at something like two with a player option instead of a four year deal. And then maybe you can stomach going to you know a higher number if, if there's not the downside of a, of a fourth year on there or something like that so uh, a lot to figure out i think the raps will be pretty motivated to keep van vliet van vliet will be pretty motivated uh to stay unless the dollar amounts get pretty different so i would you know i'd bet on him being back versus not being back uh, but again a lot of unknowns here and then i i would be i i don't know which would happen but i'm pretty sure one of the centers would be back i think the raptors would love to have either of those guys back on a one-year deal um you know based on age i think gasol is maybe going to be more open to a one-year deal but again the cap dynamics could affect this you know what does a mid-level exception look like if a golden state warriors comes after mark gasol uh, as a kind of defensive-minded passing big man for their for their system um you know what is a does can serge Ibaka at age 30 get a get a three or four year deal or, or, or something like that. Um, so those are those are the tougher questions to answer until we know how the cap mechanics are, are going to be handled. But I would expect one of the centers back on a, on a shorter term deal that that hope, you know, the team will hope doesn't eat into 2021 money. And then, you know, yeah, forced to choose. I'd say it's it would lean toward Van Vliet being back. But I don't think it's a it's a certainty for sure. If one of those teams comes in is like, hey, here's, you know, 24, 25 million a season to be our number one point guard. You know, there's a number at which the Raptors would eventually balk. buddy i hope you're right uh we're drawing to a close here but before i let you go i'd just like to shoot some fun rapid fire questions your way if that's all right with you it is but you know me man i don't i'm way too long-winded so they they might not be that rapid fire (laughs) be as take as long as you want So I mentioned in the intro that you, Blake, weren't to be confused with former NXT Tag Team Champions who went by the names Blake and Murphy. Have there been any memorable interactions on social media for you where someone did actually confuse you for a professional wrestler? 
yeah, it happens fairly often, which is and like it still happens to this day, which is pretty funny because they haven't been a tag team in years. And, <laughs> you know, one guy's name is Wesley Blake and the others is Buddy Murphy. Um, but I've had I've had a couple funny ones. I've had someone DM me. Hey, can you um, message the revival and ask them to unblock me? Uh, I've had someone tell me Hideo Itami is going to kick my ass, which he absolutely could do. Um, I've had someone basically say Alexa Bliss should leave me which I found hurtful um, <laughs> back when Alexa Bliss and Buddy Murphy were, uh, I think, on screen and in real life couple. Yes. Um, so, yeah, there have been there's been no shortage of people confusing me for the tag team. <laughs> I, well, I ask everyone this, Blake, and I know you've continued to stay busy with your writing and podcasts. But when you do get some downtime, what are some programs that you found yourself binge watching? Uh, honestly, it hasn't been much, man. For whatever reason, I haven't had... I guess the attention span to do a lot of uh, TV watching. A lot of my downtime has gone um, into books instead, or you know, draft prep, which is something that's been. This will be the most prepared I am for a draft in, in a couple years, which is nice. <laughs> um, you know, I did I did a Scrubs rewatch, which is probably like my my favorite. Um, not, I don't think it's the best show of all time because obviously that's the more like critically acclaimed and serious shows, but it's probably my favorite show of all time. Um, so I did the Scrubs rewatch. I watched Normal People, which was really good. Um, it's based on a really good novel called Normal People by Sally Rooney, um, who is an author I would, I would recommend. And then, yeah, if anyone has any suggestions for stuff I could binge, um, I, w I could use some like low investment background stuff to kind of shut the brain down at the end of the night. May I recommend The Office? Have you ever watched The Office? I have watched The Office. I, I do not love it as much as everyone else. I think the, the first couple seasons are pretty strong. Um, but once Jim and Pam to get together, uh, I, I personally feel like it drops off a little bit. What, what are your thoughts on Jim? I, I feel like Twitter has turned on him in recent years. Yeah, he's a bit of a bully. Um, you know, he doesn't <laughs> doesn't fully respect the boundaries of, of Pam and Roy's relationship initially. Um, you know, Dwight, Dwight invites some of it, but probably not all of it. And then... You know, the whole like buying a house and starting a business without telling your wife is, I don't have a wife, I'm not in a, a long-term relationship or anything like that, but I feel like those are risky moves, especially under the guise of like being the good one who gets it. I don't know. Well, questionable, questionable, Jim. <laughs> uh, Blake, I also know you're a big G1 Climax, uh, Climax fan for New Japan Pro Wrestling, and the tournament is tentatively scheduled for mid-September of this year. Without knowing the groups or participants, in an ideal world, Blake, what would be your perfect finals and who would be the winner of this year's tournament? Okay, well, you know, Okada always wins. Kazuchika Okada's gonna win. Um, that's the way it goes. Uh, I would hope we get, you know, the, the interesting thing for the G1 would be, are American wrestlers going to travel for it? Or is that gonna yes. be uh, strictly guys who are based in, in Japan? Um, which, if that's the case, uh, you know, it's going to be a heavier Japanese presence. You'll still have, like, the Zack Sabre Jr. types, uh, the Juice Robinson types, but it'll probably skew heavier Japanese. I, uh, I actually have, I have a new foster dog right now who came on uh, Tuesday, and he doesn't, like, the, the Toronto Humane Society just gave him a name. He didn't have a name. Uh, the name they gave him was Pavel, like Pavel Burry. Okay. Um, but he doesn't really respond to it. So we've been trying out different names, and two of the ones we've tried out. Basically, I'm giving him a new name every day and seeing which one fits. Uh, I gave him the name Shingo because I've become a big, a big oh. Shingo Takagi fan. Uh, I would expect Shingo to have a big 2020 G1. And the other name we've tried out is Mox. Mox seems to be sticking a little more than Shingo okay. right now. Um, but anyway, I'll say... Uh, 
I'll say we get a o Okada Shingo final. Uh, they strapped the rocket to Shingo a little bit, and then Okada wins to set up that big Naito match. I've, I was gonna say, I've, I've noticed over the years that you've fostered a number of dogs. How many dogs have you homed over that over, over that Ooh. span? And I, I would feel, isn't it difficult to do that consistently and then give them up for adoption? Because I'm an animal guy myself and I would get attached very easily in your shoes. Yeah, it's really tough. Um, the toughest one was definitely, uh, we had two like very, very young hound mix puppies a couple years ago. I say we, me and my, uh, my roommate, Paul. Um, so we have a third roommate as well, but that that roommate's rotated a little bit. Um, so we, uh, yeah, we've done this for a couple years now. I don't know the number on it. Um, I want to say it's the sixth or seventh foster we've done, but there's also like when friends go away, like Eric Kareen, my colleague at The Athletic, he's gone to, on two vacations where he leaves his dog with us for a couple weeks or, or some other friends have done that as well. So uh, I might be getting the number wrong, but yeah, it's hard to give them back. Um, we had these two hound mix puppies that were only like five weeks old when we got them and i really wanted to keep one of them but by the end of like a month with two puppies we were just so exhausted um <laughs> because it's so much work and the bigger thing though is and the reason that i wanted to foster in the first place is um i you know i have some pretty long days at the arena sometimes in normal times i travel for work um you know especially in the playoffs but but sometimes you know for things like summer league or regular season trips uh, my roommate Paul also travels a bunch, so neither of us individually can really commit to being like a, I guess the term is forever home for a dog, like neither one of us could do it on our own full time. So we find these windows where we're both going to be around for an extended period and try to use those to foster. So it's definitely hard to give them back, but it's kind of the best way to um, have dogs around fairly regularly, do some good for them, and then also not have to, you know, feel guilty when eventually, you know, one of us has to go away or we're both gone at the same time or something like that. Well, Blake, I have to talk a little bit of music with you now that I have you. And yeah. on episode 16 of Columbia House Party, you took a look at Take Off Your Pants and Jacket by Blink-182, which is one of my favorite albums from one of my favorite bands. Blake, I know you're a Blink guy. If you had to comprise a Mount Rushmore of Blink-182 songs, what would you include? Ooh, I wish I was prepared for this. Um, <laughs> so, uh, Dammit and Josie are on there for sure. Uh, I would probably include Roller Coaster because it's um, one of my favorites. Mm -hmm. And then, I don't know, this is hard to just pick. I, I probably, logically, I shouldn't go with Dammit and Josie because it's two off the same album. Um, but uh, that's what I'm going to do. And I'm gonna have Roller Coaster off, take off your pants and jacket. And I know I know it's like bad because I'm not gonna have all the small things or, or what's my name again. Sure. Um, but I think the self-titled album has like held up really well and is um, one of their like very best albums now, if you go back. Um, so I'll, I don't know which song to put on off of there. I feel like one belongs though. Um, I'll go with always, but I, I would like the, I would like the option to change that answer once I've had time <laughs> to think about it. Cause I guarantee when we, when we hang up, I'm gonna be like, oh no, this is the song I should have put on instead. Well, I'll give you that option, Blake. Where would a song like I Miss You rank in Blink fan lore? Because that's one of my favorites. Yeah, it's pretty high up there. And like, you know, also there's the, it's like peak Tom meme ability and it's like peak oh, yeah. Blink funny aesthetic. Um, and it's like, it's a pretty good song. It holds up really well. Um, so I don't know, it's up there. It's, it's probably a top 10 Blink song. 
Well, Blake, we've likely seen Vince Carter's last game in the NBA, unfortunately, the first player to ever play across four decades without saying his dunk contest because that's way too obvious. What's the one play or, or moment or soundbite that you'll remember most from Vince Carter? Huh, that's a good one. I mean, the, I would love to say the, the dunk on Weiss in the Olympics, but I, I can't say that I, I watched that uh, in real time or anything like that. Um, I guess I'll go with the the 76ers series, which was kind of, you know, I, I've said before that like the Vince dunk contest was kind of when basketball first started getting on my consciousness because I was raised as like pretty much hockey only and I played hockey year round and I, I hadn't really given um, basketball much of a chance until kind of the Vince Carter era. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I guess it's not one moment, but that 76ers series is like the first really basketball memory I have other than the, the Vince dunk contest. Blake, is Carly Rae Jepsen Canada's greatest export? Who? Um, yeah, I mean, it's up there. I would have said Chris Jericho <laughs> until he started, you know, both sides thing, everything that's going on right now and putting Eric Trump on his podcast. Uh, mm -hmm. Not to politicize this conversation any further. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, she's up there for sure. It's uh, top five, if not, if not top one. And lastly, Blake, I'm all about predictions. I'm all about putting it all on the line. So for your money, based on everything we know now, who do you like to walk away with the NBA championship this year? And how much has that prediction changed from perhaps prior to the start of the season? Yeah, I'm gonna, I don't like it. I'm gonna stick with the Clippers. That's who I picked before the season. Uh, you know, the Bucks have had a more overwhelmingly convincing regular season, but I still, and, and like Giannis has somehow reached another level. I still have some of the same questions about the Bucks that I had last year in the playoffs. And admittedly, I, I picked Bucks in seven over the Raptors in that series, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, but I did, you know, there are still some questions that the Raptors exploited outside of, uh, you know, outside of just the how to defend Giannis and abandoning Eric Bledsoe. And if the Lopez brothers aren't shooting as well, can you, you know, kind of ignore them at the top now milwaukee's bench is a little better than last year um and again Giannis has gotten a little better but i still i still have some of the same questions and i know the clippers haven't had the regular season that even the raptors have had really uh but i think a playoff optimized clippers team with Kawhi leonard coming off the benefit of rest um and things like that i i just don't see enough reason to come off of that prediction especially since you know, in some years, maybe you lean toward the East team because they have an easier path. But I really think Milwaukee's only going to have an easy first round series. And then you're talking about a Boston, a Miami, uh, a Philly or an Indiana in round two. And then you're talking about a Toronto or a Boston maybe in round three. Uh, it's not an easy path. So I, I'm going to stick with the Clippers, but I do not feel good about it. Well, Blake, it, seriously, it was an absolute pleasure to get to talk to you. You're seriously one of the nicest and most humble guys I've ever had the pleasure of working with. And I thank you for taking the time out of your day to talk with me. But before we sign off, just tell the nice listeners where they can find you on the web. Yeah, you can find me at Blake Murphy ODC on Twitter. Um, all my work's at The Athletic covering the Raptors. You can go to theathletic.com slash Raptors. Um, if it's okay to plug, I think we have a 40% off right now at theathletic.com slash we the six. That's the number six. Um, so you could get 40% off if you missed that like 90 day free trial thing we were doing or whatever. And then uh, my music podcast, Columbia House Party, we kind of do a deep dive on usually a, an album we're nostalgic about, but not exclusively. Um, a lot of times in the pop punk, emo or indie rock genre. So check that out. Blake, you're the best, buddy. Thanks again for doing this. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. Miss you. And that was my interview with Blake Murphy, who you can follow on Twitter at Blake Murphy ODC.
Like we talked about during our interview, Blake is making himself available to black or indigenous persons of color, the LGBTQ community, or any marginalized voices looking for advice, tips, contacts, or anything of the sort. So please reach out to him if that's something you're interested in receiving. Also, as a quick note here, this episode was recorded on a Thursday night, and it was announced shortly after that Kevin Durant will be sitting out the remainder of the season, so we will be not be seeing him in Orlando. I'll also be posting a few links in the episode description to noteworthy causes you can make a donation to concerning the Black Lives Matter movement, so please show your support by contributing whatever you can. All lives don't matter until black lives matter, and we need to remember that and act to improve upon that every single day until that's truly the case. I want to thank Blake Murphy once again for coming on to talk with me, as well as my audio engineer Jason Lung for putting in the time to make this show sound great once again. Reach out to him on Twitter at jlung20 for any audio questions, or if you'd like for him to work on your show or projects. You've been listening to episode 6 of the Walder Sportscast. Leave a rating and review to support the show and find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google, Spotify, and Podbean. That's another one in the books, so I'll see you on the next episode. Thank you for listening to the Walder Sportscast. Hit that subscribe button on iTunes and follow Chris on both Twitter and Instagram at Walder Sports.